Well, good evening, Neighborhood Church. We are so grateful that you have joined us here in person or online. We are a church that is following Jesus together for God's kingdom in our neighborhood. And now is the time of year, the beginning of the year, when we go back to the basics of what we are up to as a church. These are our core practices. You'll notice them on the screen, and they might look familiar because they're also on this wall. And so we have these five core practices that are our version or our language of how we intend to live our life with God together. Every church has some version of these. This is just our little distinct, unique way of saying how we intend to live our life with God together. Notice that they are practices. They are not values. They are not something that we think or feel good about or just feel like that's kind of our vibe. No, 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 no. They are meant to be practiced. They are active. They are action words. And so tonight we look at the first one, which is to follow Jesus. What do we mean by following Jesus? I'll tell you. At the Neighborhood Church, we say that we commit to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus. We paraphrase this from the late, great Dallas Willard, who was an author and philosopher and professor and all around one of my very favorites. And he had this lovely way of saying things um, in, a, in an interesting and rem, um, a lot better than I'm uh, able to say things right now. He had this way of distilling what it means. And really what he's getting at is, this is what an apprentice does. If I wanted to be a blacksmith, I would go find a blacksmith because I don't know how to do any of that stuff. So I find a blacksmith and I say, what is that anvil thing that I see in the Looney Tunes cartoons? And they will say, hang out for a minute in my shop and I'll show you. Spoiler alert, you don't drop it on animals like in Looney Tunes. I would be with him and I would learn from him how to be and do the things a blacksmith is and does. So if we are a disciple of Jesus, that's just another way of saying I'm an apprentice of Jesus. And so if I want to live like Jesus, I need to spend time with him so I can learn what he says, what he does, so that I can then go and replicate that work out into the world. And I'm telling you, our world needs more people that love and look like Jesus. And so this is where we begin. All the practices find their energy, find their meaning, find their reason for being with this first core practice. We can't love neighbor effectively unless we're following Jesus. We can't grow other apprentices unless we ourselves are following Jesus. We can't create space to make time for God and neighbor for transformational relationships to grow unless we're following Jesus and seeing how he does it. And we certainly can't bring the kind of shalom or flourishing peace unless we're following Jesus. Everything starts with Jesus. So we commit to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live like Jesus. That's what we mean when we say follow Jesus. 
Let's hear Jesus' words when he invites his own apprentices to follow him, even when it's hard. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9. After he feeds the 5,000, after some people like the stuff Jesus does, now Jesus is going to drill down and ask his own followers, do you know who I am? You might like the stuff I do, but do you know who I really am? And as we'll see in this text, to know who Jesus is necessitates that we might need to do something about it. Let's look. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private, and his disciples were with him, they were with Jesus, right, to learn from Jesus, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? So they replied, some say John the Baptist, who was recently executed. Others say Elijah, that great Old Testament prophet. And still others, that one of the other prophets of long ago has come back to life. Verse 20, Jesus says, But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter does what he often does. He speaks up first. And he said, God's Messiah. Messiah being the Hebrew term for the anointed one, the anointed king, the one who was promised to come and deliver Israel. So then Jesus does something surprising. Verse 21. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And then he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, by the way, whoever wants to be my apprentice, my disciple, they must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? And finally, he says, whoever is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man, which is a, another title from Daniel in the Old Testament, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. What is going on here? What is Jesus up to? In just a moment, we'll explore three questions and we'll be reminded of three practices as we explore this first one to follow Jesus. But let me tell you something about one of my favorite things. Amy's preschool that some of you are very well aware of. You've had kids that are in currently or have been through that preschool program with Miss Wood and Miss Payne. Well, every year, one of my favorite things is when all of the classes sing a song. They do it at Christmas and they do it in the spring. They work really hard and they do it so well in rehearsal. And then when it's show day and the sanctuary of that church where the preschool is fills up, they 
Sometimes weird in the best way where they realize that, oh, there's this many people. Well, I better not sing my song. I better shout it. Sometimes it gets weird because the kids will start to do it and then they'll just stare off into space and they'll blank and they'll kind of mouth the words, but they just go to a different place. Sometimes it gets weird because God bless these little ones. They get shy and then they get scared and then they get sad. And then sometimes they try to run away or who knows? Well, this year, Amy had an idea to alleviate stage fright. Amy has all kinds of these little gimmicks and ideas. But this year, she decided, if you guys want it, I can sprinkle a little bit of bravery glitter on you. And they said, bravery glitter? As if to say, as a four-year-old, tell me more. And so there was one boy in particular that she was really worried about because he had a ton of family come in town for the holiday. And already that week, they all went to Taekwondo and he was shy and didn't want to do anything. And then already, like, they would be in the living room and they would ask him a question. He would be shy and he didn't want to say anything. And so imagine now, this day, it's game time. The sanctuary is filling up and he's got to go on stage. Well, he has been freaked out all week. And so there's no way they think he's going to actually even get on the stage to perform. So now Amy says, well, would you like some bravery glitter? To which he says, uh, no, glitter is for girls. And she says, no, it's not. I just sprinkled all these other guys with glitter and look how brave they are. And he goes, well, I don't want it because it'll fall off. She goes, nope, because... I'll put it on and it just seeps in and it makes your whole body brave, not just the top of your head. <laughs> then some of the kids were worried that she wouldn't have enough bravery glitter. What if they need even more? And she says, well, this is very special and it's hard to find. So just a little dab will do you and we can't do it every day. Again, she's a master with the pre-K tricks. He finally relents and he says, fine, just give it to me. And so he stands there and he grits his teeth and she sprinkles just a little bit of bravery glitter on the top of his head. He got on stage. He even waved and then he performed. But the best part at this show was that when he walked off, before he even like made it down the ramp, he found Miss Wood and he said, Miss Wood, Miss Wood, it worked. <laughs> and that was just so awesome. And such a four-year-old kind of thing that illustrates, I think, an everyone kind of thing, and that is this. Our belief informs our behavior. He believed that just a little dab will change his behavior. His belief in that bravery glitter was enough to get him to do hard things. His belief in the bravery glitter was enough to silence the voice of of fear and doubt, our belief informs our behavior. And so when we talk about our core practices, when it comes to our life with God or faith, the reason we say a practice and not a value is because our faith is not just meant to be believed, it's meant to be lived. You know this is inherently true. If Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, you say, that's a lovely thing, and I believe it, and then you never actually love a neighbor? Do you really believe that this is the way to eternal life? 
Jesus said, if you love God with everything, love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you will live. I say, I believe it. God said it. Amen. Anyway, I hate this neighbor over here. No thanks. Is that the way to life? I can value freedom. I can value forgiveness. I can value generosity. But the world can't see our values. No wonder the church is in such a poor state. Because we love to say big and grand things. But can we follow through on the everyday, ordinary things of loving, forgiving, giving? Our faith is not just meant to be believed, it's meant to be lived. Belief informs our behavior. So that stands to reason that if we really believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and that we're called to do what he does, then that belief should migrate down from the top of our heads, and that bravery glitter of belief should encompass our whole bodies. Because we commit to be with Jesus because we believe that he is Lord. And then we learn from Jesus how to take up his cross daily and follow his way of life so that we could then in turn behave or live like Jesus. It's about living the Jesus way with Jesus now and forever, not just confessing with our mouths and then denying him by our lifestyle. Ask our neighbors what they think about Christians, and they'll tell you how Christians behave to them. Ask the marginalized communities sleeping down the road at Salvation Army, or ask the marginalized communities that feel like they have no space or seat available to them in Christian churches about how Christians have behaved to them. It's that serious. To confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and then deny it by our lifestyles is what has given Jesus a bad name that he doesn't deserve. And so we as his apprentices should go and take up the family trade in love and forgiveness and sacrificial generosity. That's why it's so important. So tonight, I told you, three questions, three practices. The first question, what is our story? In other words, what's the belief? What's the thing? What's the distillation? Our story is the gospel. Jesus has been discerning and distilling his vocation, and his vocation is one of Messiah. He had this sense that he was the one that God had called from long ago. He's from David's line. It's confirmed at his baptism. He is the one on whom the Holy Spirit is resting to bring freedom for captives, recovery of sight for the blind. Jesus knows that this is his lot. He is the one that says, repent. The kingdom of heaven is here. Get on board with me as God's king. I'll show you how to live. If you're weary and burdened, come to me. Come follow me and find life with a capital L. And so what Jesus did in his life, what Jesus did through his death in freeing us, and what Jesus did in his resurrection to put the world on notice that there is a power stronger than sin and death is distilled in what's known as the gospel, which is a word for good news. So our story is the gospel, the good news that Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, is the reigning Lord of heaven and earth. 
And all people are invited to live in God's kingdom, filled with God's spirit and freed from sin and death. This is our story. But there are a lot of alternative stories. There are today and there were then. So Jesus asked his disciples, what's the story about me? You've heard me preach about the kingdom. You're starting to discern that there's something more going on. But what's the story? What's the word on the street? They say John the Baptist. John the Baptist had recently just got his head cut off. But he was a famous person. He was respected because that man spoke truth to power, which is why he got his head cut off. So they said he was like John the Baptist because they thought that John the Baptist was the one to point to the one who was going to come. John the Baptist was the one to prepare the way for the Messiah. So they didn't think that Jesus was the Messiah. They thought he was the one to point to the Messiah. Okay, okay. Jesus says, who else did the crowd say I am? Then they said, Elijah. Y'all know what the last verse of our Old Testament is? What book is the last book in the Old Testament? Malachi. The last verse of the last book in our Old Testament. It's not like the last thing that was ever written by the Hebrew people. Don't get too excited about it. But if you're looking at our book, the Christian canon of Scripture, the last verse says, Elijah is going to come before the end. And then it's kind of cool in the book that you're holding. You turn the page, and unless you have the Apocrypha, you turn the page, and then it's Matthew saying the beginning of the good news. So the last verse says Elijah is going to come before the end in Malachi chapter 4. So they said, oh, he's Elijah. He's pointing to the end end. And Jesus says, okay, okay. Who else? What are the, who do they say I am? What's the story? They said, oh, he's one of the prophets come back from the dead. He's one of the prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah. What did prophets do? They performed powerful deeds and they spoke powerful words to powerful people. And they said, get your head back in the game. Get your hearts back in line. This is what prophets did. Who do the crowds say that I am? If we ask today, who do our neighbors say Jesus is? What do, you, what, what do you think they would say? Seriously. Judgmental. So he's a judge. What else? Not real. That's great. Yep. What? A liar. Mm-hmm. There's this famous thing that if you take Jesus' words really seriously, you have no choice but to say something to the effect of like, he's either a madman you know, or he's true, right? Is that C.S. Lewis or somebody? Like he's either a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. That'll preach those three L's. I should put that on a slide. I love that. <laughs> what else? This is the same kind of thing. They know about him, but they don't really know him. They have all different kinds of stories circulating around. But then the more important question, okay, who do you say that I am? See, these disciples, these apprentices, had been with Jesus. They have learned from Jesus how to live like Jesus. Watch. They, just like all the other people, have seen the things that Jesus did. Listen. 
Thousands of people saw Jesus heal. Thousands of people saw Jesus give food. Thousands of people saw and heard Jesus' powerful words that announced an alternate reality to violence and sin and shame. Thousands of them. But they still walked around saying, I mean, he's probably like a resurrected prophet from the Old Testament. Just because you're in the periphery of Jesus doesn't mean you know Jesus and are walking with him. Ouch. I will never, ever, ever forget what a woman who spent years on the street and years in jail said about following Jesus. It was something, I'm, I'm not saying this to be funny, that I literally feel was like Holy Spirit inspired, and I will never forget it. She told, our, she told her story. She knew Amy. Amy had known her for a long time. And she said, I grew up going to church. I grew up going to Sunday school. I grew up reading and memorizing the Bible. And then my life took a bad direction. And I went to the prison Bible studies. And then I was out on the streets. And then I went to the homeless Bible studies. And you're going to remember what she said because I say it all the time too. You ready? Then she said this, and I got to a point in my life where I realized that no one was going to have a relationship with Jesus, what, for me. I will never forget that because it reminds me when I have this story that I as a pastor better make sure that every one of you in my family, in my church family, and every neighbor I encounter out there or at the rock or downtown or figure it out, that it is my responsibility to micromanage their way into the kingdom of God. I'm reminded I cannot have a relationship with Jesus for you, nor you me. We'll talk about what that looks like in our third question and practice, but to bring it back to Jesus' question, so who do you say? Last year when Toby preached on this, she says, like, some of us are great supporters of Jesus. Some of us love Jesus' Instagram stories. You give it a heart. Do you put a heart on Instagram? Okay. <laughs> Jeremiah done put a lot of hearts on some stories lately. Yes. We're called to be with him, to learn from him, to live with him. Thousands of people, but it's Peter that sees Jesus for who he is, beyond just what he does. Our story is the gospel. To say, there's something about you, Jesus, that I recognize in you. You are God's promised savior of the world. For Israel, yes, but beyond Israel, for the whole world. That's our story. This is the story on the screen that grounds us and forms us. We inherit unhelpful or false narratives from our culture, our family, our religion all the time. You might read in Luke chapter 9, yeah, I, I, Elijah, uh, that doesn't resonate with me. Maybe that false narrative doesn't. How about this false narrative? God won't love me until I'm perfect. That is a bogus bull, religious, false narrative. And it sounds holy because some of y'all heard it in church. God won't love me because I'll never measure up. 
in my family or in my society. God won't bless me until I do X or Y or Z. False narratives a lot of times sound like not having enough or not being enough. So we need to, our first practice, reminder, we need to adopt the narratives of Jesus. We need to exchange our false ideas about God and neighbor for the God who looks like Jesus. Jesus has been praying. Jesus asks, who do they say I am? So that he might expose the false or unhelpful narratives because believing that Jesus is a resurrected prophet won't get you into eternal life won't see the kingdom of God brought to bear on the earth. But believing that Jesus is Lord and Messiah, hmm, there's life there. So we adopt the narratives of Jesus. What does God look like? Jesus. In the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews says that in the beginning was Jesus, who spoke long before any of the prophets or any of this. God spoke through his son, that he is the image, the radiance of God's glory. He's what God has to say. Colossians 1, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn from all creation. He's the thing that was at the beginning. John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word what? Was God. God looks like Jesus. God has spoken, and it looks like Jesus, the word made flesh. That is our litmus test for our narratives. So if your narrative says, I'm too much of a sinner, I can't pray or ask Jesus to help me. I would say, you haven't read the Jesus story. Every page is somebody that shouldn't talk to God, that has been kicked out of the temple, talking to Jesus. And then Jesus heals them and touches them and listens to them and calls them up to flourishing. We inherit such garbage narratives. I am not enough because I don't have enough. I am a nobody because I don't have this job, that car, this respect. These are false narratives. So the practice is to adopt the narratives of Jesus. The question, what is our story? It's the good news. You're filled with the Holy Spirit, freed. And so try this narrative on for size. Look yourself in the mirror. James Brian Smith, who created this triangle we're going to be filling out, he said, say this to yourself. I am one in whom Christ dwells. Try this one. I am safe and secure in the unshakable kingdom of God. When your brain and heart starts to spiral out, be rooted in our story. Adopt the narratives of Jesus. Question number two, what is a Christian? Real quick, if you have kids, ask them this question. If you have students, ask them this question. And do it real quick before I give you the answer on the next slide. Don't go to the next slide yet. Yeah, thank you, Carla. Check. Hey, man. Hey, tell me real quick. What is a Christian? Again, who do they say a Christian is? Fill in the blank, judgmental, liars, all these kinds of things. You know, what is a Christian? This is a question. Ask your kids because, watch, it'll expose the kind of narratives they're inheriting. And if 
there's something that sounds off, it's probably not because they're hearing it in that room or at the Barner's Nerf battle fight tonight. It's because we are a mess of contradictions and confusions, and becoming a Christian is a journey of a lifetime of growth and development and formation, and we don't get it all right all the time. But if we're having an ongoing relationship with Jesus to learn from him, how to live like him, we can grow and be formed. And so it's a great question to ask your kids, what is a Christian? Jesus gives them a stark reminder of what they've signed up for as his apprentice. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world? What good is it for someone to have all the cars, all the money, all the clout, all the fame, all the respect, but then when they stand before Jesus, when they stand before the God of the universe, stripped of all the trappings of this world, and all they have is a heart to show, what did you do for God and others? How well did you love? What did you do beyond the stuff? Who at your core are you? What good is it for someone to gain everything but lose life and what it actually means? I would say a Christian is an apprentice of Jesus, someone who believes Jesus is Lord and lives like they mean it. Now, sometimes when I would ask my kids this question, they would say, a Christian is someone who's baptized. And I would say, yes, yeah, Christians get baptized. But again, when we stand before God, is he going to say, well, uh, how was that water? Did you get dunked? Yes or no? It is a part of it, but there's something deeper. I would even say, if you look at this definition, you might say, oh, you're not a Christian unless you live like they mean it. And I would say, Oof, this is like we need to put an asterisk. So let's start at this statement before that, because belief informs behavior. In 1 John, you can read in the middle of his letter, anybody who says they love Jesus but hates their brother is a liar. How can God who is love be in them if they go around hating everything in this world? Is that a person that's been filled with the Holy Spirit, formed in the image of Christ? Is that somebody that's living out their confession? So it's this two sides of the same coin. Students, hear me. To become an apprentice of Jesus, you say, Jesus, I believe that you are Lord, and I give my life to follow you. What does that mean? I give you my time. I give you my attention. I love that the students are walking away with these uh, Bible reading plans. That's the story of Jesus. The students have what's on our website, and you can find it there if you're online on our resources page, a gospel reading plan for the next three months, 90 days, and you can walk through the Gospels, and you can see Jesus. You can be with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus. I love that the students are doing this. Understand that that is not what makes you a Christian. That's what helps form you into Christ's likeness. So the practice here is this, to engage in soul training. If I say Jesus is Lord and I give him my life, that means I'm going to 
practice what Jesus did, engaging in God's word. Watch, engaging with God in prayer. What was Jesus doing at the beginning of our scene this evening? He was praying in private. So what you do when you read that gospel plan is you say, Jesus prayed in private. What you do when you look at the beginning in Luke chapter 4 and 5, you see a couple times Luke says, Jesus regularly withdrew to a lonely place to pray. You say, well, crap, maybe I need to take off a day from work to play and pray and recharge. We have a bogus narrative in our culture that says it's all work, all work, all work, all work. And we say, Jesus, you're Lord. And he says, cool, when was the last time you took a day off to be with me and be with those you love? And we say, we don't need to do that, Jesus. We're serving you. He said, if it's good enough for me, it's good enough for you. Slow your roll and take off a day. What are those practices that help you tune into life? What are those practices that help form you and help you in that flourishing? They don't make you a Christian. You are a Christian, and so you engage in this because you've given your time, your attention, your stuff to say, Jesus, I give you my life as an apprentice. It means I surrender my ways and my wants, my vices and my values. My values are not fully dictated by the political party. My values are not fully dictated by my vision board or whatever. All of those things come under the umbrella of Jesus' values, Jesus' vision, Jesus' practices. Because if I want to become a blacksmith, that means that I'm giving myself to this practice. I'm not going to go out there and become a painter tomorrow. I said, I'm giving myself to this practice. And so we're with him to learn from him how to live like him. And we do that by engaging in soul training, not to get God to like us, but we adopt these practices that allow us to be acted upon, formed by God. Adopting these practices root us in the story and form us in his image, listen, over time. And the way I want to illustrate that as we round home is an illustration I used before, but it's been four years and I don't remember everything I said last week, so maybe you don't remember this either. But you'll know this image. Who are they? Forky and Woody. Forky and Woody from Toy Story 4. Just as a refresher for those of you who haven't seen it in a while or haven't seen it at all, this isn't quite a spoiler. But at the beginning, oh hush, beginning at Bonnie who is the new kid for which these lovable toys are a part of. Bonnie's nervous about the first day of school, and so what Bonnie does is she finds a sport, she grabs some pipe cleaner and popsicle sticks, she takes some mismatched googly eyes, and she creates this little guy out of this garbage. But then what she does is she flips it over and she does what? She writes her name. She writes her name on this creature, and Forky is born. Now, Forky was made with a lot of love, but also, like I said, a little bit of trash. So what does Forky do? He says he's trash, so what does he do? He always looks for a trash can. Why? Because belief informs behavior. Shush. <laughs> this is going to be a long two minutes for the, as I finish this illustration, Miguel. He's always going back into the trash can because it's nice and warm. But here's where it gets really good, Miguel. 
there's this whole montage of him running to trash and then Woody, who takes it on himself to rescue him out of it and pull him back. There's this whole montage and it's Randy Newman singing, I can't let you throw your life away. On and on, this habit, this cycle repeats itself. Forky goes into the trash, Woody pulls him out and says, no, you're a toy, stop. Well, the family takes a road trip in an RV and they're all asleep and Forky sneaks away like he's done a hundred times before and he finds the open window and he spreads his pipe cleaner arms that are always spread to begin with and he says, I'm free, I'm litter and he flies out and onto the road. Well, Woody, this time, makes a huge sacrifice. He jumps out to go find him. But here's my favorite part. They literally walk together for miles. And for mile after mile, Woody reminds him, Bonnie wrote her name on you. He reminds Forky whose he is. You're loved. Then Woody reminds him that because of whose he is, he reminds him who he is, and is something that brings joy to the creator. He's not trash. And ultimately, Woody then tells him, and this is what we forget, Woody starts to tell him the story of the other movies. So mile after mile, he's literally walking with Forky. And then that's when Forky's going, would you carry me? Would you do this? He goes, no, no. Because at some point, he's going to have to walk and choose to go as well. And he's hearing this story that reminds him that he belongs to a broader community, also made and loved by their creator. And it was over time and over mile after mile that he finally lets his belief inform his behavior. It seeps him, not just on the top of his head, but in such a way that he is fully awake, fully alive, fully recognizing that I am one who is loved and created, and I have a purpose to go and bring joy within a community and a context that is so much bigger than me. And so here's this thought experiment. It's like we're all these forkies, and we think we're trash, and we think we're, we're garbage. Do this thought experiment. If you never get that job, are you enough in Jesus' eyes? If you never kick that habit or hurt or hang up, are you still loved by God? If you never amount to make a big impact as a church or as a job employee or as some great famous person that will get a day on the calendar for your name, will you be enough? Because you've loved well and you've known who you are and you can bring joy to your creator. This is the thought experiment. Because if I can't answer, yes, I'm loved. Yes, I'm enough. No, I'm not trash. Yes, I can live as a human person, fully awake to love and to be loved. Then those are things you need to surrender. And Jesus says, give them. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest for your souls. Come take my yoke upon me and learn from me. As we walk together, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. So finally and quickly, the final question is, what is a church? What is a church? Here's an answer. A church is a community of Jesus, connecting others to Jesus as companions along the way of Jesus. 
Some of us thought that Woody is a Christ figure in the way I just told that illustration. You're not wrong. But what if Woody is like any one of us that finds the people in our life that think they're trash and you remind them, no, 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 there's a name written on you. You're loved. You're worthy just as you are. But there's more life. There's more flourishing. There's forgiveness and freedom to be found. You can participate in the life of God. And then Jesus says, what does it cost? The answer is everything. You might find yourself going against the grain of the world. No, no, no. You will find yourself going against the grain of love. Because you're going to open your heart up to be rejected, to be uh, wounded. But listen, what does it cost? Everything. My whole life, my whole value, my whole way of being. But what do you gain? The answer is also everything. When you give your life to Jesus, he gives you his life in return. And then you start to realize that we're walking on a journey. And there are other people that are imperfectly still trying to run back to the trash can. So we gather together and we walk mile after mile following Jesus. And when you follow Jesus, you look around and realize there's other people. Some are running. Some are walking. Some are crawling. But we walk and crawl and run together. It's a community. It's a fellowship of difference. Different people, different races, different languages, different ethnicities, different statuses. This testifies to the world that there's something bigger that unites us than what divides us. It's bigger than the polls. It's bigger than our understanding and our bank accounts. Jesus becomes Lord. He's over all of that. Connecting others. That's the second bit. Declaring and demonstrating there's a better story to those who think they're trash. Finally, as companions along the way of Jesus, because there's going to be a moment where I'm crawling back there and I need you to help me keep walking. So finally, that practice to finish our triangle and finish our talk. Final practice is participating in community. Dialoguing, serving, and sharing with others on the Jesus way. I spend a lot of time wringing my hands about how we can be the best church and meet needs. And I just have this clear sense this year that we are just called to be companions on the journey together. And there's a bunch of people out there that need to hear a story, that need to find someone to walk with. And it may take all night like it did for Woody and Forky. But we just ask you to bring who you are as imperfect as we all are, so that we might walk together with Jesus leading us as we are with him to learn from him how to love and live like him for his glory and our good. Amen and amen. Tonight's benediction was written by Aubrey Smith. May we drink deeply from the living water that Jesus offers taking his life into ourselves and receiving all that he has, all that he is. May our roots be strengthened in the soil of Jesus' teaching and example. May we cling tightly to him through all seasons, releasing our grip on the things the world trusts. May we find flourishing life in the light of Jesus, and may the Spirit of Christ transform us to be more like him as we walk with him. May God grant us fruitfulness in our lives lived in Christ. 
May his life be at work in us to show us God's heart, to give us Christ's freedom, and to draw others towards the living water found only in Jesus. Go in peace.